Welcome to episode 113 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano. I'm a licensed professional engineer who practiced as a civil engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering myself. So since then, I've written a book called Engineer Your Own Success and I've traveled the world helping engineers. And through this podcast, myself and my co-host, Chris Knutson, try to bring you information that can help you succeed in every episode. I've also had the honor of authoring the American Society of Civil Engineers Careers and Leadership column for the past few years. My co-host Chris and I both believe that in order to be the best civil engineer you can be, you must consistently get better. Get better at your craft, your people skills, and as a leader. And that's why we publish this free podcast to help you do just that. All right, in this episode, I will be speaking with Gina Rock, who is the program delivery manager at Jacobs. I am going to ask Gina about her career journey from the circus to Disney's Tinkerbell. Yes, she was Tinkerbell, literally flying around, suspended in the air, as you'll hear about, and then into the world of engineering. And what I really love about this episode is it really emphasizes how it's never too late to make changes in your career or your career path. Gina has done it many times successfully. She continues to reinvent herself in ways that you probably wouldn't have thought was possible if you looked at her background or where she came from in the last run in her career. And you're about to hear all about this. Gina Rock currently facilitates and coordinates grant funding for state, territorial governments, Indian, tribal, local governments, and private nonprofits. She also introduced and implemented speed estimating techniques to consolidate multiple post-disaster construction compromised by flood, wind, and rain caused by Hurricane Harvey. Gina is responsible for training new site inspectors on how to perform inspections on city halls, fire stations, roads, HUD housing, and schools. She's also responsible for scheduling all site inspections performed, quality control for technical input into grants manager, and maintaining quick turnaround time for project delivery managers. Now, before we get started, this is a free show, and our sponsors help us to keep it free, so please support them. And now I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI by asking you to listen up later on in this podcast for my advice on how to advance your career in 2019. I'll be sharing info on where to find practical tips and time-tested resources for your civil engineering licensure exam. Don't miss it. All right, now let's dive into our civil engineering conversation of the week with Gina Rock. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now, for this week's civil engineering conversation, I'd like to welcome Gina Rock. Gina has had a varied career where she acted as Tinkerbell for over 20 years at Disneyland to today, where she's a project specialist for Jacobs and is involved in different aspects of the project, including funding, which we will dive into. But firstly, Gina, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's so wonderful to finally get to do a podcast with an engineering firm and talk to you. It's very exciting for me. As I've explained earlier here in the episode, you've had a very varied and interesting career that kind of started with the circus and Disneyland and has now landed you in the field of the world of civil engineering, which is why you're here. 
But let's go back and start at the beginning of your career. What led you down the early stages of your career in terms of the circus and the acrobatic acts and Tinkerbell? It basically started with my mother sticking a book in my hand when I was about the age of three. Parents in that day and age in the 50s liked to put their kids to bed early, and mine did, and it would be light outside, and books were the only way that I was going to be able to explore, you know, what was really going outside my front door. So I got involved with the books and really enjoyed them and took myself on many journeys through many different styles of books. And I got to a point where I was daydreaming about doing some of the things I was reading about. And long story short, you know, I'm put into ballet at the age of five till I was about 12. And then I started in gymnastics in high school. And between the two, I found myself um, doing athletics at an early age. And when I was in high school, I met a gentleman by the name of Bob Jerkies, who he's a major stuntman in Hollywood, but he started his career in the circus. So he lived about a mile from my house growing up, and he had all the rigging in his backyard, all of the circus stuff, all the trampolines and flying trapeze and high falls and stuntmen and circus people and all kinds of people came into the yard to work out and learn different fun stuff on some high rigging and some scary stuff. And it was fun. It was uh, great for me to walk in to a backyard like that is kind of like taking a quantum leap into somebody else's life. I wasn't raised like that. My dad uh, started with Navy and he was a nuclear physicist. And uh, he went to Lockheed Martin, my father, and he worked in the special weapons unit. Dad, unfortunately, passed away at the age of 49. An act that was looking for a girl to join the circus, and I happened to be working out in the backyard at Bob Yerke's house, and they approached me and said, hey, what do you think? And I said, well, I'm going to graduate from high school in about three weeks, and Yeah, I'm interested. I'm not so sure that that my family would be so interested in having me go that direction. I think college was supposed to be more important than joining the circus, but let's give it a shot. So my parents, they watched me doing this whole deal where I was going up there every weekend and working out on all the apparatuses, and they kind of were getting a sinking feeling that this could, she might like this because she's in depth. Oh, yeah, it happened. You know, I got asked, and um, of course, my father just barely was speaking to me at that point and hoping that I'd go a different direction. And so my mother um, went with me for an interview, and after the interview, she was even more discouraged and scared for me. And she had an open mind about these things. You know, she taught us about the world, she taught us culture and art and museums and theater, and she introduced us to a world of great things to encounter, culture and and art, and she had an open mind. It helped. Yeah, no, I'm sure. And I was going to say that's kind of like a varied experience in that. It sounds like your mom had brought a lot of culture and art to the table, and your father was technical, professional, and you kind of had a blend of the two, which I think kind of shines out throughout your career. So you got into the circus, and I would imagine that you... In performing as a trapeze artist, you had to learn quite a bit about the rigging and the counterweights and those types of things. 
Yeah, the rigging um, was, of course, when I first started, I was working with the Shrine Circus. I was pretty young. I didn't deal with any of the rigging, but I understood it. As time went on, I acquired the Tinkerbell job. There was a point in my interview where they really wanted someone that had been in the circus and had flown at very high heights, and that was me. So I had an interview with uh, Tinkerbell to try to get the Tinkerbell job back in 1982. So before you go there, tell us about this. So Disney, is this the first time that Disney was going to have a flying Tinkerbell? How did that happen? I was only the fourth to fly at that point. There was three girls before me, and then there was a time where they building Fantasyland over there in uh, at Disneyland in California, which, you know, it wasn't even open in Florida yet. So they were building that, and they took down the tower where Tinkerbell lands. So she wasn't flying for about seven years. And I had already known about the job because I'd seen her fly a couple of times and was amazed and, of course, thought this would be a great job, not really knowing that I was ever going to end up even in the circus, least of all become Tinkerbell. I had been with the Trapeze Act in Japan, and... The gentleman's wife had been Tinkerbell for the years before they took her out. And I said, well, when do you think they're going to put her back? And he said, well, I don't know, but you could inquire. So I was overseas with that circus. And when I came back to California, and so I made a beeline for the park and, and I inquired. I said, when are you putting Tinkerbell back? I hear she's been out seven years and I have experience. And it just so happened they were going to put her back in six months. So my timing was impeccable. It's just, you know, meant to be kind of thing. So that's how that happened. Just inquired at the right time. I was back in 1982. So with all my circus background, at that point I had been working in the circus from the age of 18 until, let's start with, at 18 I was with Shrine Circus and I worked, I flew trippies at Circus Circus for two and a half years. I was with Ringling Brothers for two years. So I had a varied background in area lust at that point. So let me ask you this question. How does this conversation go? Mom, Dad, I'm going to be a flying Tinkerbell at Disneyland. Well, they were really excited that I was going to go from the circus to actually being an aerialist at Disneyland. This is a little better. This is less circus, and this would be good. Uh, you flying in the park. And plus, I was going to be near home because I was raised in California, north of L.A., about 30 miles. So they were really happy that that was going to happen. Now, my father actually had passed away before I became Tinkerbell. He wasn't there. And, of course, the voice in my head was, there was always like this little knocking noise in my head about education. It was always there. And I kind of just put it on hold. And I had two kids, and, you know, I stopped traveling, and I just did Tinkerbell, and I raised my children. And they went to the park with me like three times a week. I would take them to work. basically raised it. <laughs> so, so that's how that happened. And what did it feel like for you when you found out that you had gotten that job as Tinkerbell at Disneyland? Like, how did you feel about it personally? Amazing. When I first inquired about the job, I had been told that there was possibly 300 people that had tried vied for the job. And 
I had gone in with the two bookloads of pictures of me as an aerialist. And when I did the interview, uh, I was really excited. And long story short, it took them two months to tell me that I was hired. They knew I was hired, but they were putting me through all of the background checks, and I didn't know that. So for two months, they knew, and then when they called me, I mean, I was so excited. So that trapeze background is what really helped you to get the job? Absolutely. Take us into the show of it, because I've read a bit about it. You were, like, flying, and you, like, hit into a mattress, or what actually were you doing? Because it sounds scary to me, but... There's a a trolley that goes on top of the wire. It has built-in braking system. Now, the brakes have to be adjusted according what is the wind. So what they did is before I started, they sent down sandbags that were anywhere from 115 pounds to 125 pounds. And at the time, it was like 112 And they would send the sandbags down with the trolley, and they would adjust adjust the brakes if the sandbag hit too hard on the other side. Now, this is two football fields long. Actually, it's not totally two football fields long. It's, what is it, 320 for one football field, so 660 feet I'm going across. And there is a mattress that is hung from the wire, and there's two guys on either side that hold the mattress so that when I fly in, they stop me. And there's a trampoline in back of that in case I need a second stoppage. So that's how that works. Trolley sits on the wire, and I become the sandbag. They set me down the wire like that. The interesting part about this is there was counterweights. There was a time when something happened. I went up to the top of the Matterhorn, and I noticed there was a gigantic dip in the wire. And having been an aerialist for many years, I knew that there was something amiss and I wasn't going to fly. It was dangerous. So I basically, the next day, went up there with the engineering folks that that hung the wire. And I said, you got a big dip in here. What are we going to do about it? And I said, what about some counterweights? That's what they did. They stuck counterweights on the other end of the flight, and that kept the wire taut, and so that they worked great. That helped a lot. They still had to take wind reading. So let's say if I had a 15 mile an hour headwind, headwind, then they would back the brakes off a little on the trolley before I would fly. And one time, a very dangerous which stunt, which wasn't supposed to happen, is I had a really heavy, heavy headwind of about 19 miles an hour. And they had backed the brakes off really hard so that I could get through it. And I did get through it. But the next day, they did not adjust the brakes without the headwind. And usually it took about 25 to 28 seconds to get across those 660 feet. It took me like 17. And I knocked the guys down that were holding the mat. It was, it was dangerous. So you really had to be, you know, adept at doing the wind ratings and making sure that adjustments were made accordingly. And if they weren't, you know, somebody was going to get hurt. And I think, Gina, what helped with, obviously, with your trapeze background is that even though they have an engineering staff at Disney that I'm sure is responsible for all of this, you were able to take a look at it yourself and get a good feel for it and know when something was wrong. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was one of the biggest advantages of coming in with all of my experience. There was times when I would have a piece of equipment. I had this wand that weighed about 20 pounds. It was like the Statue of Liberty. And it flung me around backwards. And I had to be able to adjust myself, almost like doing a a trick on the trapeze, in order to get myself straightened out and and know how I was going to get across safely. So there's no doubt that my experience was a benefit to them, definitely. Let's start to transition a little bit. You did that for, I think, a little over 21 years or so, and then where were you at? What was going on in your career? What were you thinking? What were your next steps? Now, I had retired in 2005, so I was there from 1983 to 2005. Back in 2003, that little message I kept getting in my head about school popped up real hard one day. My daughter was going to college. She was, at that point, in community college, and I said, you know what, let me take you over there. I think I want to check some things out. So I went over to Pierce College with her and um, walked into the uh, counseling office and said, hey, I'm interested in going back to college. And uh, I knew I was going to retire from Tinkerbell pretty soon. And they said, great, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to take a physical geography. And they said, well, how long has it been since you've been in school? And I said, a really long time. And they said, okay, well, this is a hard class. Let's see what you can do. And I walked in, told the professor I hadn't been to school in a long time. And he said, okay, Gina, you sit right here in front and you audit my class. You tell me if you think you can handle it. Three days later, this guy was a tremendous teacher. I mean, this guy was inspirational, the way he taught. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to learn physical geography from this professor. So I stayed in the the class and became very enamored with the whole thing. I think it was just something that was probably always there. I was in school for those two years, 2003 to 2005. I was a sociology major at the time. And then I got the beep. Remember the beepers? I don't know how old you are, but there was beepers. And I had signed up for Parsons-Brinkerhoff Engineering to find out if I wanted to be a disaster housing inspector. And that was done through a mutual friend who introduced me to it. So I was taking the engineering classes and learning about all the hazards and learning how to inspect households. And I got that beat for Hurricane Katrina. And that was my first job. And that was right in the middle of a class. So I didn't uh, get to finish my AA, but that's how my career got started. Just to recap that a little bit, so you got into this physical geography class, and I'm sure people know what that is, but it's really studying the features of the earth, right? The natural features of the earth. And then you took some other courses as well while you before you got the job? or There was classes that taught you all about the hazards and all about housing inspection. What was going to happen is I was going to be getting a hold of a computer with a piece of software that had housing inspection in it. And I was going to have to know what to put into the computer in order to rebuild the houses that were wiped out by any given hazard. So I had to take a lot of classes, and I did that. And like I said, I started with Katrina, and I'll never forget the first day, you know, I was taking the classes, but I had never had any practical experience. And I'm like, I get this computer in my hand, and I'm like, okay, now what do I do? 
so that's when my little technical stuff started at that time when I started really learning how to use uh, a computer and being a little bit more technical than anything I ever did. So then I guess you relocate to Louisiana. No, actually what happened is I was an independent contractor at that time. They deployed us from all over the country. I came in just however long they needed me. I was just uh, basically the gentleman who introduced me to the individual assistant said, do you know the most important thing for you to do is to take every single deployment they offer you. If this is something you really want to do and you like it, accept all of them. 33 states later in 13 years, that's what I took every single deployment. I traveled everywhere. The first half of my life with the circus and then when my kids were older then, and um, that's what I did. When you got into the inspection work, when you started with Katrina, I guess that was your first deployment. Was it something like, did you know right away that you were going to like it or how did you feel when you got into it? I was terrified. I'm like, you know, first of all, I had remodeled a couple of houses. So I knew something about housing and remodeling and what was what. And, you know, fortunately, I knew what insulation and drywall was and a shingle. And I make that. I put a little levity in there because I actually meet people in this industry that have no clue and I don't know how they get through. I end up learning how to rebuild an entire house and, you know, what goes in it. So it was very difficult to learn. I'm the kind of person, I was a reader, but I'm also a learner. I absolutely love, it drives people crazy, but Anthony, I ask a lot of questions. And as a result of asking a multitude of questions and extracting information from people so that I could learn it and learn it well. And that's what I'm all about. Because when I take something on, I learn it and I got really good at it. And that was because I inquired a lot about how do you do this? What's this? And for me, it was all about learning it. I may have done a lot of weird things, but when I I learn it right, (laughs) So you did the inspections for a while, and then you got into some of this funding work that you're doing now, correct? So what happened was back in, by the time uh, it was 2016, that was Hurricane Matthew. Now I had been to 33 deployments with Parsons Brinkerhoff. I had been performing in quality control, supervising, teaching other inspectors, uh, new inspectors how to inspect. And I went just about as far as I could go with that company. I wanted to get into management, and it was difficult to get in. So I felt at that point it was going to be really important. I had gone as far as I could go, and I'm all about, I want to keep going, and I think I want to try this or I want to try that. And that's what I did. I called up, a friend of mine told me about CH2M Hill, and public assistance. And I actually had permission from Parsons Brinkerhoff to be on the public assistance side because it wasn't going to conflict with their contract with individual assistance. And I thought I was going to do both. Turned out that CH2M Hill wanted to hire me. So I became an employee. So I left Parsons Brinkerhoff and started with public assistance in September 1st of 2017. And that's when I first started. 
Actually, it worked uh, quite well. There was a new model coming out for public assistance, and they've been working on it for four or five years, and brand new. And so I got to go to school up at the Emergency Management Institute, which has the same letters as your company. So I went up to the Emergency Management Institute and learned about public assistance. At that time, I'm still with CH2 in Hill, and I started in Texas, and they put me in as a crew lead to train people that had never done an inspection on anything. Didn't even know what it was or how to use a tape measure or, you know, what to look for. And I started my career in public assistance as a crew lead and training people. And um, then Jacobs came in and decided that they were going to buy CH2M Hill. It's been going on for a year. The merger just, you know, it's complete now. And they came to me back in June and said, Gina, you want to, what do you think about being a program delivery manager? And I said, well, it's something new. Let's do it. You know, anything new. I'd like to try. So that's when I started, you know, I made that next step and, that's what I've been doing. So from 2017 until now, I've been with public assistance. And now I am Jacobs because CH2ML is officially Jacobs now. And you have a bachelor's degree in emergency management. Is that correct? Yes, I acquired that. I realized that the whole little school voice in my head was Still bugging me and going, okay, so you want to get a little bit farther in your career. And of course, you know, I'm not that young. So I started very late with school and I never completed the AA, but I went, uh, I went to school and I completed my emergency management degree in 2015. And uh, it was fantastic. I mean, it was a great school. I learned so much and really became enamored with the emergency management at that point, because I saw it from the other side of the fence, you know, the real emergency managers that were like running the whole deal. And I learned a lot. So that's actually where I wanted to head, Anthony. I wanted to head into emergency management, get out of the other side. And I realized that I was going to have to make another step that I started applying to various engineering companies to try to get into the emergency management side, and I wasn't getting anywhere. And I even tried with FEMA for several years, and even with all my experience, which was crazy, USC had been, they contacted me, they were looking for people that worked in disaster recovery to learn GIS. And I had no clue what GIS was at that point. I'm like, GIS, what's that? And of course, it had everything to do with geography. So that was it. I'm like, they told me that. I'm like, okay, I'm there. So I got into USC, and that was in 2016. And they pulled me right into geospatial intelligence, which was even better. Because I always had an affinity for satellites and space and where do you get the information. And that's what I was learning. So I got into geospatial intelligence, and I believe that that's, I'm rounding that off with um, getting my 107 drones license for aviation and uh, going to incorporate that into my GIS studies and produce something so I can actually claim being an engineer at some point. It's amazing, and you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to have Gina come on the podcast is because it just goes to show you that 
you can continuously learn new things in your career. You can continuously find new opportunities at any stage of your career. Gina's obviously proved that by going into the circus and learning all about the trapeze and the riggings, the counterweights, taking that knowledge and kind of leveraging it into the Disney job, which she had to compete with 300 people for, which she was able to get and be very successful at. And then again, leveraging it into going to school, learning, and then being able to get this job as an inspector and take on these deployments and then wanting to change things up a little bit, get into emergency management, get a degree and not, like you said, not at a young age at that point, getting a degree and then switching gears and getting into geospatial and drones. So it's really impressive. And I hope it's really inspirational for you out there as a listener. If you ever think you're either bored in your career, you want to change something up, you think it's too late, you think you can't learn it. Um, I think what you've heard here in the last 20, 30 minutes can pretty much dispel any of those thoughts that you might have. What I'd like to do now is we're going to take a break for just a minute. I'm going to come back in the hot seat segment and pick Gina's brain just for a few more questions about professional development and learning. That's something that she's obviously excelled at. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time to put Gina Rock on the Civil Engineering Hot Seat, which in today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, PPI. Do you feel stuck in your job? Not sure how to move forward? All of us have been there at one point. One surefire way to move up in your career is to get your civil engineering license. The best place to gather info on licensure and pick from multiple print and digital review options is PPI2Pass.com. PPI has helped over 4 million engineers pass their licensure exam and become leaders in their fields. They offer licensure exam prep for the FE Civil, PE Civil, and SE exams. So no matter where you are on your path to career advancement, you can count on PPI's support. Take the first step towards making 2019 a great year for you professionally and check out everything PPI offers to make your journey to engineering licensure as smooth as possible. Visit PPI2Pass.com to find essential licensure exam prep books, digital review, and helpful tips and advice. That's PPI, the number two, Pass. Com. All right, I'm back here with Gina Rock. And Gina, it's time for you to go on to the civil engineering hot seat. Are you ready? I think so. A little scary. But oh, come on. You've done the trapeze. This is nothing compared to that. <laughs> what, yeah, what's scarier? I think this is, actually. All right. So first question, are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, is there a specific morning routine or a lunchtime routine or something that you do consistently? that's contributed to you being successful as a professional? I have about 25% more to write. I'm writing a diet, a comedy diet health book. And the reason I say comedy diet is because I've been, as an athlete, I became a trainer and learned all about holistic medicine and how to listen to your body, what your body needs in order to function at a really high capacity level, which means let's get the brain, the body, and everything working at the best possible capacity. Now, how do we do that? So what I did is I, over the years, I studied with a holistic medicine doctor, 
found out that Chinese medicine was uh, really great for certain types of remedies for healing. And I came up with, it started as a theory, and then I produced a way to, started consulting with people and, and having them try these herbal vitamin remedies, which was all in liquid. It really, it's like the vitamins everybody takes, but it's all in liquid form. And taking vitamins and exercising as much as you, you know, that's a healthy diet routine and eating the right foods and taking care of your body because the only way to get your brain to work at 100% capacity is to take care of the body internally. And so I say that that's, a lot of it is that. If you want the whole thing to work in one big Harmony, and I call that Bodies in Harmony. That was the name of my company when I was training athletes. That's what you need. That's what helps me a lot. If I'm not healthy, then I can't think straight. And if I can't think straight, I can't learn anything. That's interesting. And I think as this podcast goes on, what I'm learning about you is that you are a learner. You keep opening up different topics and things that you've learned so much about, which is great. So let me go to my next question for you. You said that your mom put a book in your hand at three years old and you've been, you're a reader, you're a learner. What is a book that you might recommend to people or a book that stands out for you in the course of your career that was very helpful or inspirational for you? I actually started with a lot of the classics, Mark Twain. And, you know, of course, Nancy Drew is not a classic, but it's, it's a classic book. Got me into the wanting to know what's going on. Most of the classics took me on my journeys, Old Man and the Sea. I'd like to mention a book that's profound for everyone, but I can't do that. You know why? Because I've read so many books that none of them really stand out because I've read so many. I would say that adventure books and books that are autobiographies of people that had a positive outlook on life. And even I, I got into the Darwin theories. I got into a lot of science. I started reading a lot of science because that's where I was headed. So I think it's all of the classics and the people that produced electricity and people that developed real serious engineering technology that we have today. I read all about GE and their management styles and how they were so successful. There's a lot of companies that were very successful because of the way that they, the standards they held for their employees and the way they taught them. It's all about learning styles. And I noticed I listened to a few of your podcasts and you talk about learning styles and, and mentors and how important it is to be able to decipher who can you learn from? Who is a, a leader that's actually leading in a way that you're not productive? And I wanted to kind of touch on that because you find that in this industry a lot. I mean, you can go to five jobs and end up not being able to produce really good work because you're not with the right leader. Let's talk about that because that's the next question, which is, if you think about the managers or the leaders that you've worked for throughout this very career that you had, and I'm not asking you to name specific people, but if you think about 
which you would categorize as your favorite managers or your best managers or your most effective managers, what makes a manager or a leader effective in your career, in your experience? What are the, some of the traits that jump out at you? The first thing that I noticed, and we didn't touch on this, but I'll just do it in 30 seconds. I was a talent agent for over 25 years. I hired very highly proficient variety entertainers. These are people that, you know, let's say you were a magician at the age of 10 and you were doing it till you were 50. I mean, I was hiring people that had honed their variety talent skills for many, many years, no matter what it was. And so I used to hire people myself all over the country and, and for Disney. I did a lot of booking, talent booking for Disney. I know that when I was in that position, I always treated people the way I wanted them to treat me. And I feel that the best managers are the people that understand how you treat people. They've got an innate ability to decipher what somebody's good at and what somebody is not good at and take the whole team and take every one of their proficiencies and put them together on a team. And for every position that's deficient, that can be substituted with somebody that is proficient at it. And at the same time, the person that was deficient can learn from the person that's proficient. It's the leaders that put these teams together that recognize the abilities of the people that are in their group. And every good leader that I have met, and there isn't many, have been people with that innate ability to understand that, that working as a team works when you put people together that have all kinds of different skills. And the key is be willing to share them. That's the key to the whole thing, willing to share them. It's not about being selfish. It's about creating teams that really work like a machine together. And I know that it's something I think people don't think about a lot. They just think, you know, you got to go out there and hire the best people. But sometimes you got to hire the right people for the team that you have in front of you to be able to mesh in well with the team and, and pick up where other people can't or add value where other people can't. So that's great. All right, Gina, I've got one final question for you, and we call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with it, let's say, and a young engineer starting out his or her career, and you had an elevator ride to give him or her some piece of advice about their career that they were embarking on, you certainly had a, a varied and successful career. What would you say in that short period of time to that individual? Be open, allow people to show you their abilities be willing to learn, be open to possibilities that you're interested in. And the main thing is, you know, be confident. Try to, whatever you are confident in, let that show, let that shine. And then whatever it is you're interested in learning, approach it. Let people know that's what you want to do. I think being open to possibilities is really important. And everything's about not being self-centered. It's all about what do I want to do and what's going to make me happy, but how am I going to do it and what's the best approach? I think people should be able to do whatever they want to do. If you have an aspiration to either be an astronaut or you want to go and work in, a, in your favorite store, I think that you can do 
and you've heard from everything I've done. Because if I had to do all over again, Anthony, you know what I would do? I would be an astronaut because I have a fascination with space, and I would have gone to NASA. That would have been my dream. You would have been an astronaut. Wow. Yeah, I would have definitely gone into the whole spatial science. Well, you're good at learning things. It's not too late. Yeah, I'm a little, <laughs> it's a little bit late. But, you know, I just think the main message is you can be and do anything you want to do. I've proved that. You don't have to stay in one niche. You don't. Now, what you do need to do is learn. Like, I learned everything as far as I could take it. I didn't just give up on it, skip to the next. I mean, I learned what I did, and I stayed years in what I did. I just think it's be open to, to people from all walks of life because that's the environment that we're in in offices now. And be happy in your career. If you're not happy with what you're doing, then change it. Well, Gina, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the Civil Engineering Podcast. Your story is amazing and it's inspirational. Like you said, change it. You know, and I think that that's civil engineers and professionals in the civil world have hundreds of options of what they can do from soils engineering to foundations to structures to inspections to drainage and stormwater and everything environmental. There's so many different opportunities under the umbrella. And it's great to hear you really not just say, but you've done is you've done a lot of different things and it's possible to change gears to learn something new as long as you're willing to do it and to kind of roll your sleeves up and do it. So thank you for coming on and sharing your story. We certainly loved having you and we wish you the best as you kind of continue to evolve in your career. Well, thank you so much. It was an honor and a privilege to be on this show. It's been time for me to share how does a person be an aerialist and then work within the engineering field? And like I said, anything's possible. Thank you for having me on the show. It's so much fun to be able to share my story and from the other side and off the top of a mountain and actually be on the ground and talk to another engineer. It's, it's awesome. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Gina Rock. I'm really happy that she shared her very interesting career journey with us because like I said earlier on, it's very inspirational whenever you can reinvent yourself in your career. And she's done it several times. And in the civil engineering space, there's many ways to do that because our industry has a lot of different niches within it. Now, before I let you go, I have to tell you about a couple exciting changes and new things coming to the Engineering Management Institute. First of all, you probably already know that we have a membership community. We do monthly webinars. We have a forum where we have interesting and engaging conversations. We put out some special manager videos to our members. And one of the things we're doing is we're actually going to be moving away from our private forum that we built and using a private LinkedIn group starting April 1st. And the reason for that is because LinkedIn is really the place to be these days. We preach that engineers should be very active on LinkedIn. And in fact, we help you build your profile and we've offered different resources. So why don't we want to have you on there as much as possible? People don't have time to go to necessarily another forum today, so we're going to eliminate one thing from your life. That's the 80-20 way, right? So our forum will now be a private group on LinkedIn. I'll be in there. We'll be commenting every day and helping you in your career. If you're interested in checking out the community, just go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Also, I want to let you know that for our Engineering Management Accelerator online workshop, which is at engineer2manager.com, that's engineer2manager.com, 
We have our next session starting March 21st, our next live session. You can, of course, always do it on demand. We're going to be adding something exciting called digital badges. If you're not familiar with what a digital badge is, if you were to go through our engineering management accelerator workshop, either in the future or in the past, once we have the digital badges in place, you will be able to claim a digital badge that describes the program and you'll be able to show that badge, the engineering management accelerator on your LinkedIn profile. So again, it's helping you to bolster your resume, your credibility, your experience as an engineering professional, as we constantly talk about how important that is. You can check out that program at engineer2manager, that's engineer2manager.com. I hope you join me for the next live session on March 21st. We recently finished the session and we've had several podcast listeners that subscribed and came on board with us. All right, please remember you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode 113. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned by Gina or myself during the episode. And also, don't forget, we've been publishing episodes as well on YouTube. Not all the episodes, but some of them are there. Just go to youtube.com forward slash engineering careers and check out our playlists. All right, until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success. 